Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Uh, glad, to, glad to have you all here. We continue our, our study of the goodness of God going through Romans. We're going to pop ahead a little bit. We've done Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, and tonight we're going to do 12. If you like to turn over there, where, where we'll be rolling through. It's a, another very familiar passage, um, but uh, I, I, I hope, this, hope this blesses you. I hope, hope this teaching blesses you. Um, if you want to get on the mailing list, you can scan the QR code. We got an email from Australia this year, this week. Uh, so somebody said, I can't scan the QR code. I was like, that, that would be quite a feat from Australia. So for those that I've never really thought about, there are people that just listen to the podcast, which now really terrifies me. So I have a whole, a whole new level of fear is now entered into me. Yeah, I mean, y'all, I mean, we, come on now. Y'all, 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 you know, y'all already know I'm a fool. Now I'm being fooled internationally, apparently. But if you want to sign up for the, for the uh, email and you're not, you can't see the QR code, you can go to stationhillchurch.com. On the left will be a, a little menu and you will see Coffee House Theology. You can click on Coffee House Theology, go to the bottom of that page, and there you can put your email in, and you'll join the mailing list, and you'll get the notifications, you'll get the notes from the previous week. Um, and so very, very glad it was brought to my attention, uh, I think. And uh, like I say, I hope, I'm glad we have, glad we have something in place, right, where we can, where we can go ahead and bless, bless people that aren't even here. So that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And I'm sure we've got a Slido room tonight. Or we don't, which is kind of God's grace. Oh, there it is. Um, So much for that theory. Okay, and so you can go to slido.com, put in the room number 35530927. All right, I have to get that verified. And or you can scan the QR code. You can ask questions here. You can also like questions, right, and 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 raise them up the list. And so they'll they'll come uh, come more prominent. Um, Again, I'm here alone, as we as we mentioned the last few weeks. So easy questions only, please. So we're all good. We're all good. Ask, ask whatever you want. Lord, Lord's, the Lord is good in this stuff. It's good in this stuff. All right. So the goodness of God, right? God is good. God is the standard of good. And what God does is good, right? So, so God, and the most important, right, God is the standard of good. Because a lot of times we get lost in, in, in what good is is what my good is, right? Or what's, what's good or what I think is good. And, and that's not how it works, right? God sets the standard of goods. And so we talked about suffering last week. And a lot of times we will suffer, right? And, and not even know why we're suffering. But that suffering is to be, because we're Christians, to be to the glory of God, right? And so we find ways to glorify God, even in our suffering, even when times are hard. Um, chapter five, right, was that, that beautiful, beautiful prose that we, were, that we are saved by faith. Right alone, there's no works to be involved in it. Chapter six anticipates the question that just because it's by grace doesn't mean you can do anything you want. Right, you're not free to sin, but you're free from sin, and so you're free to follow God. Right in righteousness, and then Romans seven says we're free from the law, but the law has a purpose. Right to show us what sin is, but we don't conform our lives to the law; we conform our lives to Christ. So then we did chapter eight, uh, which established that we're no longer under condemnation. Right, but have freedom. Praise be to God, right? In the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God uses our sufferings to his glory and he, and he hears our groanings in prayer, right? His steadfast love holds us close and nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love, right? Our hope is not in our hold on him, but in his hold on us, right? Praise be to God, right? Praise be to God. All right. Chapter 12, Paul combines doctrine with duty as we, as we look at both what we believe and then how it plays out in our relationships. Um, Paul lays out relationships with God, ourselves, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our enemies. And, and this is, I think this is, a, this is really powerful and it's, we often treat it a little trite, right? Kind of like this is something we've heard, it's almost like, a, like something we just say. But these are really, really important words. These are really, really important concepts for us to follow God faithfully, right? And so let's, let's start with, with verses one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So when we see a therefore, we ask, what's it there for? There we go. We have been trained. Uh, the therefore at the beginning of this section is a combination of entreating and authority right? He addresses the readers as brothers. And that's really important coming out of chapters 9 through 11, where the discussion was the Jews and the Gentiles. We are united in Christ, whatever our heritage, background, social and economic status, or any other measure. Right? Jay's always said the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? So we are one family and have precisely the same job to be wholly committed, humble, long-suffering, loving people of God, right? That, that's our gig. That's all of our gig, right? The, the grounds, right, for Paul's appeal is God's mercy, which is Hebraism for, for many and varied manifestations of his mercy. Um, he is so merciful, right? We, we've seen his unfolding, the unfolding mercy of God in our study. From the free gift of salvation and grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, freeing us to serve the Lord, properly placing the law as we conform to Christ by the Holy Spirit, uncondemned, free, empowered by the Spirit's indwelling, seeing our current sufferings in terms of God's glory. Mercy is the key word in chapters 9 through 11. Um, 9, 16 says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And even for the disobedient, right? So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. That's 1130, 1132, right? For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all, right? By the mercies of God, Paul makes this ethical appeal. We have no greater incentive for holy living than the mercies of God. Thomas Erskine says, in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. The Greek noun charis does double duty in both grace and gratitude, right? As we saw in chapter six, God's grace, far from encouraging or condoning sin, is the foundation of righteous conduct. Paul's ground for this appeal is both the body and the mind, right? The presentation of our bodies and the transformation by the renewal of our minds. First, our bodies where Paul uses five terms to show the sacrificial imagery. Part of our role as a priestly people is in response to God's mercy to present our bodies as living sacrifice. We talked about our priestly roles, right? That a lot of times as Baptists, especially, we talk about us being the priesthood of the believers, meaning that no one stands between us and God, right? That we represent the people to God. And, and we forget another part of the priestly role is to represent God to the people. Right? And a third part is, these, is offering sacrifice, and what we offer is us as a sacrifice, right? Um, they, they are holy and acceptable, so seemingly a moral equivalent of without defect or physical, physically unblemished, a fragrant aroma. They are our spiritual worship, with the Greek word for spiritual being logikos, which I can't pronounce, right, because I'm a redneck, which can mean a spiritual act of heart and mind with our minds fully engaged. So there's a, there's a reasonable, reasonability to this belief, right? There's a reasonability to this. Um, Epictetus, the first century Stoic philosopher said, if I were an... It, um, if, I were a, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to be a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am, log logist, this word in Greek, a rational being, so I must praise God. Right? And so while reason is not how we get to God, right? God is not a change, following Christ is not a change of mind. It's a change of heart. There's still a reasonableness to it. Right? There's still a reasonableness to it. It's not a blind faith jumping somewhere. There is a reason, a reasoning to it, which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Uh, this living sacrifice is not made in the temple courts or church building, but in our homes and in the marketplace. This presentation would have shocked the Greek culture Paul is addressing as they regard the body as an embarrassing encumbrance, right? The motto of the day was soma sima estin, Right? The body is a tomb where the human spirit is imprisoned in the body and longing for escape. And you get the difference between that and what we believe, right? We believe the body will be resurrected, right? That that is us as a whole being. God deals with us comprehensively, body, soul, mind, and spirit. And that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. 
Um, let's see, where are we? Even Christians today are uncomfortable with their bodies. Um, as the traditional evangelical invitation is to give our hearts to God, not our bodies. No worship, and this is a stock quote, no worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in the concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Similarly, authentic Christian discipleship will include both negative mortification of our body's misdeeds and the positive presentation of its members to God. Right? So, our, so when we worship, when we follow God, it's not just our minds. Right? It's not just a state of heart. That leans heavy into dualism. Right? But us, mind, body, soul, mind, and spirit. Um, Paul made clear that our bodies reveal human depravity in deceitful lips which spread poison, mouths full of bitterness and cursing, feet quick to shed blood. Christian sanctity shows itself in the deeds of the body as our members are no longer instruments of wickedness but instruments of righteousness. Our feet will walk in his paths. Lips will speak truth and spread the gospel. Tongues will bring healing. Hands will lift the fallen. Arms will embrace the lonely and unloved. Ears will hear the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently to God. And our mind is transformed according to his will. Paul's echo of the call throughout scripture is not to, tra is the, the, Paul's, e Paul's echo of the calling throughout scripture, not to be of this world, not to conform to this world, but to conform to God and his ways. Uh, Leviticus 18, three and four, always good when you can get some Leviticus in there. Uh, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you now. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. When Jesus talks about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, right, he reminds us, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Right, we live in a culture that believes that, right? I sit there and endlessly jabbers. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him, right? We talked about that in prayer last week, right? You're not going to surprise God. We talked about that with Job, right? Job prayed, ang I mean, bitter angry, right? Bitter misunderstanding, bitter lack of understanding. And yet God honored his prayers, right? God said, this is a man of prayer. And because Job was always humble, right? And we're always humble as we go before the Lord. Um. We do not take our foundational ideas from our surroundings. So we are not conformed to whatever the prevailing culture is about us. We are continually transformed according to God's will. We imitate by nature. And when that is focused to imitate Christ, it's wonderful. But too often we imitate the world and not Christ, being enticed by its ways rather than his ways. We either copy the world or copy his ways. That happens in church. Right? People will try to copy the ways of other people instead of copying what God's calling them to do. Right? We each have a unique calling. You know, if I got up here and tried to teach like Jay, I would be highly unsuccessful because I'm not Jay. Right? Or if I got up here and tried to teach like anybody else, you know, this is what I've got, this is my calling, the Lord has called me to this moment, I do what he asked me to do. You know, again, as I've told you many times, I never thought I'd be sitting up here in front of 100 people talking every Wednesday night. That's kind of crazy. I sit in a cold, dark rooms with monitors and do math. Okay, that's most of my life. And here, you know, here we are. And that's by the grace of God. And I'm not saying that flippantly. If you, if you get anything out of this, it's a work of God. Because this is not my nature. This is not what I do. I don't understand how he uses it. I don't really, it do, it's kind of bizarre to me, but I continue to be amazed at his faithfulness, right? Because that's what this is, is an exercise in the faithfulness of God, right? That's really cool. That's really cool. All right, 
The verb for transformation as passage is also the verb used in Matthew and Mark in the transfiguration of Jesus, right? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, right? As for the change in the people of God, right, shown here and in 1 Corinthians 3.18, it is a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. So it's a change of character and of conduct. Right? What changes our character? Romans 5. Perseverance. Perseverance yields character. Character yields hope. Hope will not fail us, right? So when our kids have to persevere, what are they forming? Character. If we take away all the obstacles from our kids, what don't they form? Character. When things get hard, what do you find out about your character, right? So sanctification, right, what we're talking about, right, is fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. The two value systems are incompatible. Right, whether the subject is purpose and meaning of life, how to measure greatness, how to respond to evil, ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, religion, or anything else. The two standards diverge because the source of the ethic is not the same. Right? Those two standards diverge because the source of the ethic is not the same. So how does this transformation take place? It's the renewing of our minds. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit certainly includes our minds. We are then, in our process of sanctification, continually transforming our minds to think more like Christ. And in doing so, we are able to discern the will of God by testing what is good and acceptable and perfect. The three stages of Christian moral formation seem to be, first, our mind is regenerated by the word and the spirit of God. Then we are able to discern and desire the will of God, and then we are increasingly transformed by it. Right? The cycle of transformation by the Holy Spirit. The cycle of transformation. Um, a lot of people separate 12.1 and 12.2, and that frustrates me to a degree. Because he talks about we, we, we give up our bodies, right, as living sacrifices, and then our minds are transformed, and those, the way we live and the way we think are inseparable. The way we live and the way we think are inseparable. And when we try to separate them, when we try to make following Christ into a mental exercise, we miss so much of, of what Christianity is and what God calls us to. Does that make sense? Right, this isn't an intellectual, it's also not a social enterprise, right? People that fall off into the social gospel. And Ben's worked with, my son's worked with a lot of those this summer that, you know, the gospel comes, what unifies them is not Christ, but the social causes therefore. Right, and that's falling off in other places. You know, there's one way to stand true and a million ways to fall, right? A million ways to fall. And these are just, these is just a very small list of those ways, right? But we, we don't want to separate that because if you don't live it, you don't believe it no matter what you think, right? If you don't live it, you don't believe it. I can't remember the psychologist's name, right? It says there's three kind of values you have, public, private, and core. He said public values are values that you just spout off. They're most associated with, with politicians and preachers, right? They just say stuff. They have no, nothing behind it. Private beliefs are beliefs you actually think you believe until they're tested. Right? This is what I believe about these things until it's your child. Right? Until it's your wife. Until it's your dad. And you find out. Right? Core beliefs are the way you actually navigate the universe. That's the way the base, those are the base values that you actually make decisions from. What does Christ want to transform? Those core values. Right? We change the way we see the world. That's those boxlet, right? Box, make it as a boxlet to your eyes. Right, and bind it to your hands. Everything you see, everything you touch, right, comes to the gospel. Right? We good? OK. 
Okay, just checking. Don't see any casualties yet. Y'all look pretty awake. It's pretty good for a cold Wednesday night. All right. So Paul's appeal is an address to the people of God, grounded in the mercies of God, and concerned with the will of God. So as we're transformed, his will embraces all of our relationships, particularly to God himself, 12, 1 and 2, to ourselves, 12, 3 through 8, each other, 12, 9 through 16, and our enemies, 12, 17 through 21. Um, our relationship to ourselves, so we're thinking soberly, right, about our gifts. For by the grace given, me, given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So our transformed, renewed mind leads us to think well, to think humbly as Christ did. Paul turns our minds to how we should think of ourselves. Paul's imperative echoes Jesus' sac statements when he began verily, right from the King James or truly, in any of our more modern translations. Paul is addressing the, his readers from the position given him as an apostle, right in Romans 1.5. Though I whom have received grace and apostleship, right, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Um, Right, his, his message is clear. We are to think rightly or soberly about ourselves, not too high nor too low, right? We develop a, this perspective through our measure of faith and then through our gifts, gifts. The measure of faith has been debated in its meaning, and I mean debated. Um, it's been debated um, and a lot of ink. Often it's interpreted to be different amounts of faith given each believer, but that seems kind of strange um, when, you, you let, when you kind of look at it in the overall context of scripture. Um, another interpretation is the measure of faith is against the standard of Christ, more akin to our maturing and our sanctification. Christ himself is the measure of faith for all Christians. Right, and so in another way to look at it, it's kind of how we're gifted, right? How our gifts fit in with the body as, our, as measures. Um, Paul uses the analogy between the human body and Christian community to illustrate how our gifts work together. The different gifts provide different functions necessary for the overall health of the body. We are one body in Christ, which would also have been shocking, right, to the multicultural and multi-ethnic multi church in Rome. Uh, we are members of each other, unified in Christ, dependent on each other. The diversity of the varied gifts within the body should inspire awe and humility among us and we, as we recognize that God is the giver of these gifts. Right? We have different gifts according to the grace given us, where his grace, or charis, right, bestows different gifts um, on the members of the body, Paul then provides a sample of seven gifts which he urges to be exercised for the common good. They're often divided into speaking gifts, prophesying, teaching, and encouraging, and encouraging or exhorting, and service gifts, serving, generosity, leading, and showing mercy. Um, the first gift mentioned is prophecy, right? Prophesying, uh, speaking under divine inspiration. Ephesians 2.20 says the household of God is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, unquote. The gift is separate from the apostolic call which Paul has. When prophets speak, we should weigh what they say against scripture because anything they say will not contradict the word of God, the objective restriction of in proportion to our faith. Right, so any prophetic gifting, any prophetic speaking will not contradict scripture. 
The other gifts are a bit more routine. Um, I debated how to write, how to, what word to use there because they're, they're gifts of God used in the service, but they're not kind of, they don't seem super, supernatural in some kind, of, some kind of sense like prophecy does, right? Service in general is the general Greek term for a wide variety of ministries. Uh, there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Uh, we should each concentrate on the gifting we have been given, not distracted by the gifting of others. Teachers should cultivate their teaching ministry. And this is perhaps, one of the authors said, this is perhaps the greatest need of the current church, right? Many times it's difficult to find solid teaching, right? I mean, there's kind of a rarity of teaching. Um, not here, which I think is incredible. Uh, so many of you all are teachers here or teachers in, in, in more broad senses. And that's just awesome that we would have a concentration of this kind of biblical understanding, that God would give us that kind of gift, right, as a body, that we would have such solid teaching. I, I think that's, that's just amazing. Um, exhortation is a wide range of meetings, ranging from encouraging, comforting, uh, conciliating, or consoling. Uh, this gift may be exercised from the pulpit or platform, but more often is expressed in befriending the lonely and encouraging the downhearted. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is a biblical example of having this gift and using it to, to befriend Saul of Tarsus, right? Now known as the Apostle Paul, the author of this book. Right? And, and encouragement, if you watch that gift, my wife has that gift kind of in spades. And everybody that, I mean, it's amazing to watch people sit down with her and the difference in their countenance at the beginning of the conversation and the end of the conversation because she makes them see God within them. She, she shows that, and that's a lot of what encouragement is, right? It's showing you how God is working in you, what God has for you, right? Anticipating his grace working with you. I have a friend that does that for pastors, that calls out pastors and can then give them a vision of what their ministry can be. And it's awesome because a lot of times the pastors don't see it themselves. They don't understand what their calling is. And he helps clarify that calling, clarify how this Holy Spirit's working in them and, and helps them move forward. It's, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, Miss Reed's work right at the, at the senior adult homes, right? What incredible encouragement that is. I hear over and over and over again, right, of how encouraging that is across our senior adults, across the people that can't get out, right? What a beautiful ministry that is. Um, Contribution and generosity, I was gonna say, are they building something behind me? Um, contribution and generosity should be done without grudging and ulterior motives and with sincerity. Leadership is both within the home and the church, usually in the same sense of contributing to, the, to, to meeting the needs of others, like a shepherd. And lastly, God is merciful. We too must be merciful. This mercy, mercy is shown for anyone, particularly those in distress. Often the Old Testament, Testament trio, right, of the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner or foreigner. And this mercy is shown cheerfully. This list is much less well known, right, than the list over in 1 Corinthians 12, right, which has nine in the first list, eight in the second, Ephesians 4.11, which lists five. Um, but these, these three common, right, there's three commonalities across those lists. And the first is the source of the gifts is God and his grace, Right? All of these gifts come from God and his grace. The purpose of these gifts is to edify the church, right? We're here to edify and build up each other, right? And then, where'd I go? And all of them emphasize the variety of gifts, right? We note that the first Corinthians ones tends to focus on the supernatural, whereas Romans 12, you know, other than the prophecy are more general practical gifts. Um, but when you take all of these together, Right? We need to certainly broaden our understanding of what giftedness is, right? of how people are exercising gifts. And if you keep, my, my dad always taught me there were no invisible people. And so we know all the convenience store clerks um, where we go. Uh, our boys and I uh, alternated uh, Saturday morning breakfast between Waffle House and Cracker Barrel. We can tell you every one of their stories. We've prayed with them through things. We're a well-worn path vacation. We go back to the same places for vacation over and over and over. We know the desk clerks. We know the people at the restaurants. We've prayed with them. We've prayed for them, right? 
And so what you see is the variety, that how all these variety of gifts, how the variety of the way God works, right, happens in, in all, the, all of these spaces. Um, and kind of concluding, right, we need to think soberly of ourselves, not too high and too low. We also need to think realistically of each other, right, not coveting or devaluing our gifts or others' giftings, right? We tend to have a rank in our head, right? That there are certain gifts, certain giftings and callings that are above the other. But if your body doesn't function, one of the things I've learned about in diabetes, I'm a type two diabetic. One of the things I've learned is there are things in my body I didn't realize I needed to work that fail me from time to time, right? And while I, I've never talked about them with anybody, I'm not sure I knew they existed until they came up in a conversation with my endocrinologist, right? They're really important. There are a lot of people that we don't see that do things in these churches that we stand on the shoulders of, right? People that, that signed a, a, a ledger. I don't know if you know the story of how Brentwood Baptist came to be, right? But they were meeting in the children's home. And Brentwood Baptist is the mother church of, of Station Hill. And, way Brentwood, and Brentwood Baptist is the daughter of Woodmont Baptist Church, which is where my wife was baptized and we were married. And they bought the land for, for Brentwood. But the way Brentwood Baptist Church was built is they, they were all meeting in the basement of a children's home. And they passed around an eight and a half by 11 pad. And each family wrote their name and how much of the debt of the new church building they would personally be responsible for. How does that sound? You were there, right? That's, and everybody saw everybody else do, right? What everybody, and so you knew who was doing what, given what. That's right. That's right. And they took it to the bank. They literally took it to the bank and received a loan to build the building off of that ledger pad. So these folks, right, this church is built on her shoulders. The reason we have, that's right. The reason we have this building, the reason we have this ministry is the faithful work of people, of you and your, and your people, right? And I think that's worth applauding, right? That, that's why we, that's why we, and we're all built on people you will never know their name, right? Our faith rests on people you will never know their name. And what we pray to God is there are people whose faith will rest on us who will never know our name, amen? That we continue that same legacy. That's pretty cool, sorry, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, we need to exercise our gifting for the glory of God and edification of the kingdom, particularly the church. Withholding our gifts from the church is not in line with God's will, right? You need to exercise the gifting God has given you. You need to contribute, right? We are not here to absorb. We are here to, to, to serve and to give, right? And there's certainly time for teaching and to sit under teaching. I love to sit under teaching. But there's also a time to exercise your gifts, and what God has given you, right, to his glory and to his kingdom. We good? And thank you. I keep thinking I've only got about 20 minutes to teach, 20 minutes worth of stuff to teach. That never turns out to be the case. All right, our relationship to one another, love in the family of God, Romans 12, 9 through 16. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Um, several commentators mentioned the similarities between Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 1, 12, and 13. From the fact that the body of Christ, right, 12, 4 through 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 20, 22 through 27, through the diversity of the ministry within it, 12, 6 through 8, and 1 Corinthians uh, can't see what that is, my little things of 2023, the 30, to the absolute and overriding requirement of love, 12, 9 through 21 in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Agape, right, demonstrate that is what dominates the rest of the chapter. 
Uh, in Romans, agape has only been used to reference love for God. Demonstrated in the cross, 5.8, poured into our hearts in 5.8, uh, and refusing to let us go in 8.35 and 39. Now Paul focuses agape as the essence of Christian discipleship. This love permeates our community of believers, clear for the use of one another, brotherly love, right, Philadelphia, and God's people. This, in fact, this is a fast staccato list of imperatives, adding ingredients of, to the recipe of love, which is Stott's quote, which I really think is cool. So there's 12 components. Um, sincerity. Love must be genuine without hypocrisy, right? Hypocrites is the, was the Greek word for play actor, where we get hypocrite. The church is not a stage. Love is not in theater, right? Love and hypocrisy exclude one another. We have such a thing as pretense love displayed in the most vile form in Judas' kiss, right? And we don't love people so that, inside or out of the church. One of the things we've talked to our boys about. We do not love people so that. We don't love one another so that. And we don't love people who are outside the church. We have a, and extending this to witnessing, right? We have a, a gay couple. They've been together as long as Rachel and I have. And they are our friends. They come and stay at our house. Uh, one is an Argentinian Jew and the other is a former Mormon. Uh, the Mormon knows the Bible better than I do. The Argentinian Jew knows the Old Testament better than I do. And we witness to them. And they come and they stay at our house. They drive an hour and a half out of Miami down to the Keys to eat dinner with us each way just because they love us. What we've done, we've gotten, the church we were at before this blasted us for that. But I don't know any other way to show them the love of God because their problem is not that they're gay. Their problem is they don't know Jesus, right? And so Rachel and I are, and our family are gonna do anything we can to show them the love of Jesus in hopes of their salvation, right? Because you know what happens once Jesus comes into their heart? He's gonna wear them out on their sin just like he wears me out on my sin, amen? He wear you out on your sin? Yep, that's not my job. My job is to love, right? Love God and love others as we love, our, as we love ourselves. That's my job. That's your job, right? God has wrath taken care of. Holy Spirit's got transformation taken care of, right? Salvation takes care of all, all kinds of things. Holy Spirit will take convict of sin, right? And bring that to life, how glorious that is, right? But my job is to get them to know the love of Jesus. They started off yelling at us about God. Yelling at us about God. That went on for about 10 years. I've now got them yelling at us about Jesus. That's progress, right? That's progress. You can yell at me about Jesus. That's cool. And we'll, and, you know, but, but at some point, right, they'll find Jesus to be the truth. Because if, they're, if anyone who is earnestly seeking the truth, where are they going to land? Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and life. Right? Truth, we, truth is, I, know I keep telling you all that all the time. Right? We're going to give truth a hug one day. Right? We do not believe in a propositional truth. We believe in a personal truth. That's a big deal. That's a big deal that we will give truth a hug. Right? Because that means anybody seeking the truth is going to find Jesus. Anybody earnestly seeking the truth is going to find Jesus. Right? Praise be to God that he designed it that way. Right? Isn't that awesome? Sorry. All right. Discernment. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Sincere love followed immediately by the command to hate. Um, you know, that's what abhor is. Right? The, the, the positioning demonstrates uh, aspects of authentic love. Right, love is not the blind sentiment it is often taken to be, but a discerning love, so passionately devoted to the beloved that it hates every evil, every evil incompatible with their highest welfare. Both verbs are strong, almost vehement. Love's hatred of evil expresses abhorrence and loathing, while love's holding fast to what is good expresses a sticking or a bonding as with glue. Right? We don't hate evil because it, people are evil. We hate evil because it destroys people, right? Sin kills every time, no exceptions. Every sin kills every time, no exceptions. Something dies. And we don't want people to die, right? In any way. And particularly to, to to lose it, to not be saved. All right, no one gets me. All right, um, affection. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. This pulls together two family words, which I think is fantastic. Love one another is the Greek word for love, indicating our natural affection for our relatives. I would have to say some of our relatives. Just kidding. Uh, like, like the love of a parent for a child. We'll say love for a parent for a child. Um, brotherly affection, Philadelphia, is the love of brothers and sisters have for one another. Both were relig- originally des- designated for blood relationship in the human family. But now Paul uses them to describe the relationships within the church. Right? You're my brothers and sisters. Some of you are my parents. Right? I look up to for wisdom. Some of y'all are my kids. Right? But we're family. We're family. All right, honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, the second, this is the second one. Uh, the second. Uh, this is the second one another exhortation right in the passage. Love in the church family is a mutual honor as well as mutual affection. We are to accord to each other the highest possible honor. You remember this was an honor shame culture. Right? Everything either gave you prestige or, or you lost prestige. And so what we do is in Christian terms, hold each other in the highest prestige. Hold each other in the highest honor. Right? And that's not in worldly terms. That's in Christian terms, in terms, of, in terms of looking like Christ. Enthusiasm. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. A religious enthusiasm is often despised as, is often, yeah, despised as fanatical. 18th century Methodists were mocked for enthusiasm, given to perfectionism and exaggeration. Uh, Paul had something else in mind. Zeal is fine so long as it is accorded to knowledge. The image here is a boiling, bubbling pot. The last clause is abounding on enthusiasm as a practical commitment to the Lord as slave and master will keep zeal rooted in reality. Right, we get kind of, especially Baptist again, we're afraid of the spirit. We're also pretty, pretty afraid of the Pentecostals, right? They kind of make us nervous, right? I've learned, I've got two dear friends that are solid Orthodox with Pentecostal bents. I've learned more about the work of the Holy Spirit through them than any other people I know. And it's been staggering to, to, to realize things that I thought were not yet that are actually now, right? And when, you, when they bring you an awareness of the Holy Spirit and his work now, right? What is the Holy Spirit doing now, fully present in the Spirit? It's a pretty awesome thing, right? And again, being kind of a head knowledge theology dude, that, that works against my, against my grain, but it's so good for me. And it shows me whole different ways of, of Christ working. Right, gives me opportunities to see beautiful things I would miss otherwise. Right, isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? All right, patience, yuck. Uh, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulations, be consistent in, be constant in prayer. Uh, the center of this phrase is hope, uh, the confident Christian expectation in the return of our Lord and the glory to follow. It is the source of our abiding joy, but also calls for patience as we endure tribulation and perseverance in prayer. Right, that's why we pray so much. That's why we are constant in prayer. Right, that's why we pray for each other. Right? It's because we're going through tribulation and that allows us to endure. We do not do this alone. It's too hard to do by yourself, right? Uh, generosity, contribute to the needs of the saints. Uh, this is the sharing of our resources one another to meet the needs and the sufferings in a generous way. And we think back to Acts 2, right, where the church had everything in common in the sense that they shared their possessions as each has need. As Jay has told us before, that's not some bizarre form of socialism, right? It's taking care of each other, right? It's taking care. If you see a brother or sister in need and you can meet that need, meet it. If you can't, bring it to the church, right? I mean, that's how we work. That's how we take care of each other. Hospitality. Uh, seek to show hospitality. Generos- I love this. Generosity is shown to the needy. Hospitality is shown to visitors. Philadelphia, the love of brothers and sisters, has to be balanced with philoxenia, love of strangers. Both are indispensable expressions of love. In the time Paul is writing, hospitality was particularly critical since ends were few and far between and those that existed were in less than savory places. As an, ex- an essential Christian ministry of the day was to open their home to travelers, particularly for the church leadership to do so. Paul did not tell them to only practice hospitality, but to pursue it. 
right? That's what our greeting teams do practically here. That's what we should do in our neighborhoods and our work. Actively pursue hospitality, right? We are not just to accept strangers as they come to us, but to pursue strangers to show them grace, right? That is an active pursuit of, of, of hospitality. A goodwill, bless those who persecute you bless the, and bless and do not curse them. Uh, this call to bless those who persecute us is a particular challenge as they are generally outside the Christian community. Blessing and cursing are opposites. Uh, Luke 26, uh, 27, 28, Jesus tells us, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good for those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Um, we're going to talk about this a lot, and in, in, uh, that's kind of the whole next section of this. So, right, we're, but we're not only to bless them, but we are to pray for them, right? Luke six twenty eight, and do good for them. Luke six twenty seven. Um, sympathy, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We never stand aloof to someone's joys and pains. We enter in them to identify with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and emotions, laughter and tears and feels a solidarity with them, right? We wrap our arms around brothers and sisters when, when they weep, right? And we jump for joy with them when they celebrate. Right? It goes back to what you, that's what you do as a family, what you do as a family. Harmony, live in harmony with one another. The Greek is literally think the same thing towards one another. Be of the same mind, right? Live in agreement with one another. Uh, this phrasing is very, uh, very similar to Philippians 2, where Paul appeals for the church to be like-minded and one in spirit and purpose. The fundamental place is the renewed Christian mind, and we should share the same basic convictions and concerns. The indwelling Holy Spirit will drive us to unity. The Holy Spirit always drives to unity. Always drives to unity. As I've said before, when I was a trustee, when I started seeing disunity was when I knew I was not walking by the Holy Spirit. Right? Holy Spirit always drives to unity. Humility, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Snobbery is one of the worst forms of pride. Obsessed with what differentiates us, be it status, class, ethnicity, tribe, or caste. They work toward the division of us rather than the harmony, and they are careful of the company they keep. They forget Jesus' life of freely and naturally fraternizing with the social rejects and lowly, and he calls on his followers to do the same with equal freedom and humility. Right? We should walk in the same grace with people that our society thinks are lowly as we do people who, people who they lift up. Right? We should treat them the same. What a comprehensive picture of Christian, wow, Christian love. Love is sincere, discerning, affectionate, and respectful. It is enthusiastic and patient, generous and hospitable, benevolent and sympathetic. It is marked by harmony and humility. May our bodies exhibit and grow in these day by day. Our relationship to our enemies, not retaliation, but service. I'm sure this is gonna win me a lot of friends. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good, right? Move by the mercies of God and, transform, and with transformed minds, renewed to grasp his will. All our relationships are transformed. Not, we not only offer our bodies to God, to develop a, so, a sober self-image and love one another in Christian community, we now serve our enemies, right? With echoes of verse 14, persecutors appears evildoers. And these last five verses talk about how we as Christians should respond to evildoers. Including verse 14, we see four resounding negative imperatives. Do not curse, right? Verse 14. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, verse 17. Do not take revenge, verse 19. And do not be overcome by evil, verse 21. They all say the same thing in a different way. Retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden to the followers of Jesus. He never hit back in word or deed. 
we have an inborn tendency toward retribution, ranging from a child's tit for tat to an adult's more sophisticated determination to get even. Jesus calls us to imitate him. Romans 13 certainly shows a place for the law and courts and punishment of evildoers, but our personal conduct should never get back by injuring someone who injured us. Non-retaliation was a very early feature of, early Christian, of the early Christian ethical tradition, going back to the teaching of Jesus and also in the Old Testament wisdom literature. First um, Thessalonians 5, uh, 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. First uh, Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or revile for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For it to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Uh, Matthew 5, 38 and 39, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Luke, 26, Luke 6, 27 and 28. I, but I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Each of the four negative imperatives is, is accompanied by a positive counterpart. We do not curse, but to bless. We are not to retaliate, but to do what is right and live in peace. We do not take revenge, but leave this to God. And in the meantime, we serve our enemies. And we are not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, in verse 17, we do not repay evil for evil. But see, but see our public behavior as above criticism. The reasoning seems to be that when we are refrained from evil, we must be practicing good, and we do not refuse to inflame the quarrel, but we have to take the initiative in peacemaking, even if, as the qualifications, if possible, and so far as it's up to you, this is not always possible. Sometimes other people are either unwilling to live at peace with us, or they lay down a condition for reconciliation, which would involve an unacceptable moral compromise. Right, beloved, right, agape, Paul assures them that this love of his love, because he is calling them to the way of love. Paul opposes never avenge yourselves with two positive counterparts. The first is leave it to the wrath of God, because the Greek sentence literally means give place to wrath and we give place to God's wrath. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35. We also remember Matthew 16, 27. Uh, Matthew 16, 27 says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. These verses note that evil should be punished, but it is God's prerogative and not ours. We trust God in his word that when he says to leave it to the wrath of God and we know his infinite justice will come to fruition. On the contrary, we serve our enemy. If they are hungry, we feed them. If they are thirsty, we give them something to drink. Wow, right? Heaping burning coals on his head has several interpretations. Some say it's God raining fiery coals on the wicked as symbols of judgment. Uh, some even arguing that our service of them will intensify their punishment. Um, have a hard time seeing that in the context of the rest of scripture. Um, others suggest that the coals is a symbol of shame and or remorse experienced by an enemy rebuked with kindness. Right, a third option is the coal is a symbol of penitence, that carrying coals in their head was an act of repentance. Um, two of the positive alternatives to revenge are to leave any necessary punishment to God and meanwhile be busy serving our enemy's welfare. This is not contradictory. Our personal responsibility is to love and serve our enemy according to his needs and to genuinely seek his highest good. The coals of fire this may heap on him are intended to heal, not hurt, to win, not alienate, to convict him into repentance. Paul thus draws a distinction between the duty of the private citizens to love and serve the evildoer and the role of the state, which would be in chapter 13, right? That as an agent of God's wrath to bring him to trial and if convicted, punish him. These principles are seen operating in Jesus at the cross where they hurled, or when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And on the other, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, confident God's justice would prevail. The fourth antithesis is good and evil. 
A summary of Paul's argument in the climax of the chapter. This is a, a stark alternative before us. If we curse, repay evil for evil, or take revenge then, because all these are evil responses to evil. We have given in to evil, right? Sucked into its sphere of influence and become overcome, overpowered by it. If we refuse to retaliate, bless our pre- our persecutors, ensure that we are ourselves are doing good, are active in peacemaking and peacekeeping, leave judgment to God, love and serve our enemies, and even have him have hit, win him over to a better mind, then in these ways we have come overcome evil with good. And this stock quote I thought was effective. In, in all our thinking and living, it is important to keep the negative and positive counterparts together. Both are good. It is good never to retaliate because if we repay evil for evil, we double it, adding a second evil to the first, and so increasing the tally of evil in the world. It's even, it's even better to be positive, right? To bless, to do good, to seek peace, to serve and convert our enemy. Because if we, they, if we thus repay good for evil, we reduce the tally of evil in the world while at the same time increasing the tally of good. To repay evil for evil is to be overcome by it. To repay good for evil is to overcome evil with good. This is the way of the cross. Right? Such is the masterpiece of love. When I, when I think about our enemies, right, the, the, the people that are outside of Christ, um, I don't, you don't absolve personal responsibility. But what, what Romans 6 teaches us is they're slaves to sin, right? What Romans 6 literally says, that you're either slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. And there's a, a lady who's like a, like a daughter to us. And... Um, as a single mom, she adopted at birth a, a little boy whose mom did meth while he was in the womb, and a lot of meth. And, and that really has drastic effects, um, physiologically, psychologically. And he's now six. He is the sweetest child, the sweetest child. But he will get spun up into rage. And I'm, I mean rage. When it just, it just, and he just doesn't have a way to cope with that. And they've got him in therapies. They've got him right in all kinds. There's all kinds of ways we now have of treating children who, who because of how they were, where the trauma occurred in their development, there are now patterns of therapies and patterns of things they can do to help rewire their brain. But he can't control it. Which again, he's a six-year-old boy. There are things he can control, right? So it's not advocating prosperity. But there's also a component that he can't control. The people who do not know Jesus are slaves to sin. So when they do things that are evil, they're just doing things in accordance, right? They, they can't control that. That's part of their nature. Right? That's part of what drives them. That's part of what they're internal. And so when we look at lost people and they act lost and we're frustrated by that, that seems kind of silly, right? Because how are lost people going to act? Lost, right? That shouldn't be a hard question. And they'll work against us. They'll work against God. Even to the point of our working to our detriment, right? But what do we do? We love them, right? We love them in hopes of what? That they come to know Jesus too, right? We, we hope that, that this little boy some, at some point, right, we can find the right things that can help his physical conditions and his psychological conditions that can overcome that trauma. And the Lord can do stuff like that. Sometimes he does it through doctors. Sometimes he does it by touching him on the head, right? And we, we anticipate God's grace, but until that moment, we continue to love, love this little boy, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And part of that brokenness is once we're saved, is it, one of the most beautiful things I saw was about, a, I guess, two weeks ago, I saw him with his granddaddy, and, and this is a rough, poor Appalachian family. And I mean rough, and I mean poor. And the dad, uh, the granddad, um, his mom almost certainly drank while he was in the womb. He had his first drink at eight and became an alcoholic. And, and, he's, and he is a hard man. And, and, and seven, eight years ago, he, he kind of, he cleaned up and, the, and found the Lord and God. It's just a beautiful thing to see. But when, Wyatt, when this little boy gets, gets spun up, the granddad is almost exclusively the person that can go and calm him. 
And I told him that's, and I was sitting there watching that. And it was literally one of the most, literally one of the most beautiful things I saw. When I was talking to him, I said, "That was that's incredibly beautiful to watch you and, and your grandson interact." I said, "Because you're both broken in the same way, and the Lord has brought you through that, right? And that's what why. And there's a connection there with this little boy. There's a connection to his granddaddy, and there's a grace there. And so the ways that you are broken." right? The ways that God saved you, that's so you can connect to other people that haven't come to Jesus yet, right? That have that same brokenness, right? A lot of times those are our enemies. We good? This helpful? All right, easy questions, right? That's pretty good. I got that at 739. Uh, let's see. All right. Is war acceptable in light of Romans 12, 17, and 21? Nothing like a, nothing like a nice light topic to start off. Um, there is, there is uh, and I, gosh. I'm talking that in here. There's a, there's a theory of just war. I'm not gonna go through it because it's long and deep. But there, there certainly is a theory. I come from a military family of Christians. Uh, my, my daddy was a test pilot, an Air Force pilot. My granddad was a Marine. My, my mom was born in Hong Kong when he was stationed there in, in 1937. I, my, my nephew is a SEAL. My cousins are Army Rangers and are SEALs. Um, we, we certainly believe there is an honor um, in what they do, that the, that the government is called to do things, and these men and women have, and our family sacrificed a lot. Uh, military military life is rough, um, but yes, I, I believe there there is an acceptable there is an acceptable place, but it's not out of vengeance, right? There's a heart set toward it. Does that make sense? There's a heart set toward it. Micah, my youngest son, is looking at going in the CIA, and so we've had a long discussion on what does it mean to be a Christian and a spy. Yeah, that is a that is a non-trivial theological conversation, right? And the CIA is recruiting him. He's a he's a language savant in Arabic, Russian, and uh, French. But uh, yeah, there is there. I think there is a place in God. Like I say, there's there's a lot of writing on that. A lot of people that are a lot um, a lot brighter than me that have written on it. Uh, how do you decipher the difference between feeling the moral pressure of friends? and copying them, like you mentioned, it's, it's a matter of your heart set. What is in you is greater than what's outside of you, if you're a Christian. What's in you is greater than, that's one of the things we always had confidence in. Our, once our boys, we saw them repent for things that teenage boys wouldn't repent for, you're kind of going, that's the Holy Spirit. And what, what, we saw was, what we saw was they could walk into places of moral pressure. And, you know, Benjamin's at Princeton and Yale, which are places of reasonable moral pressure that not un, un, incongruent with our belief system. Micah's at Miami, which is a party school, right? We live in Williamson County. The values here are not congruent with what we believe. As Benjamin said, you know, Spring Hill and Franklin are no, no more Christian friendly than Princeton. It's just obvious who's a Christian here. He said there's a veneer of Christianity down there that's still socially acceptable. He said no such thing exists up here. He said, at least you know who believes. Um, and so what I say is, is you can go, if, if the Lord's calling you someplace, you can go to that place and not that moral, it will not affect your heart, right? Benjamin served at multi-faith churches this summer. It did not affect his heart. He was not there seeking their truth. He was there to convert them to Jesus and figure out how they spoke and what their language was and, and how could he find their brokenness so that Jesus could heal them. And so I, I think you can go where I, I think you can go wherever the Lord calls you. Um, and you, and there's also a difference between copying them moral pressure and speaking in their terms, right? Because I told you the, Baha, the story of the Baha'i guy, right? When I told him I believed in Jesus, he said he believed in Jesus. I said fantastic. And I said, tell me about your Jesus. He said, well, Jesus came down Melchizedek. I was like, rut row, Right? And so he explained all the times Jesus Lee's flash came down in Baha'i in 1844 in India. I was like, ah, that's a different Jesus. Right? So you, and so I've read the Baha'i holy books. He said, can I send you the Baha'i holy books? Would you read them? Yes. I've read the Baha'i holy books. I did not read them seeking truth. I read them seeking a way to tell Jesus, to tell my friend about Jesus. 
And I had to understand that when I said certain words, what did he hear? So that I could say, present the gospel clearly in terms he could understand. Because if I said Jesus, he would go, and we weren't talking about the same thing, right? Is that good? good. Uh, How's your knee tonight? Still hurts, thank you for asking. Still hurts. Yeah, I've got a torn MCL. That's pretty exciting. Uh, let's see. What were the references for the other two lists of gifts? Uh... Next question answers it. Oh, okay. There we go. Okay, there's the next. There's, okay, good. So y'all, y'all don't need me. I'll just kind of put the topic up. Y'all could discuss it among yourselves on the... Uh, Question board. Uh, so is it possible for, for someone to be a character without having character? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm related to several of those. Um, that's a fantastic question. Is there a yellow pad that will be passed around at the end? Uh, not till the next building, building campaign. So we're, now, now that we've got a veteran that knows how to do this, you know, we're, we're armed and dangerous. How do coals on the head heal? They, they can bring about, it's, it's like cauterizing a wound. Right. Um, again, we, we're, when, you're, when you're doing triage in the field in the military, sometimes you will have to cauterize a wound. It is an excruciating process, but it's necessary to save the person who's wounded, and so that you can cauterize a wound with heat. I've, yeah, it's experience we have had. Uh, is that it? We good? We good? Is this helpful? All right, let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. Man, we're thankful. Man, are we thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. We're we're thankful for your goodness. Um, Thankful for all the ways you take care of us that we don't even see. Uh, It's just hard to imagine your grace, Father. We see so little and we take so much of it for granted. We're thankful for Romans 12. It talks about our relationships, right? Our relationships to you and, our, and, and how we think about ourselves and to our brothers and sisters and, and to our enemies. And we're grateful for your counsel and your word. We're grateful that you let us know how those things are to be properly structured. And so, Father, find us faithful. Uh, find us faithful in, 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 in being transformed, right? Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices and, and that process of sanctification and transforming our minds. Um, find us with a right perspective of ourselves, not too high, not too low, that we understand what our role is in the kingdom and, and that we edify one another and that we glorify you. Bless us to, to take care of each other, to, to lift each other up, uh, to weave and to mourn. And, and Father, bless us to, to love our enemies. That's, that's really hard. One of, the, one of the hardest things in this world, right, is, is for people to think of us as being weak. Right? Chesterton says that it's easier to find someone to be a martyr than a fool for Jesus. And so, Father, let, let us present you accurately, no matter what the world's terms call that. Find us faithfully rendering your gospel and your truth to your glory. Change us, Father. Do not leave us the same people that walked in here walking out. We've encountered your word, encountered your truth, and encountered you. And so, Father, grace us with transformation to look like Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Next week, we're going to do the Ten Commandments, the goodness of God and the Ten Commandments. So pray for me. Thank you all.